0: Happy New Year, everybody. Mm-hmm. Blwyddyn the nowy And come in Welsh. It's good to have you back. It's the new year. We're at episode... Ten. Ten. Oh, my gosh. We've made we, it. We, we have made it into double digits, Tom.
1: Have our listeners made it with us? That's the question.
0: Well, our guests have. So we've got two, two Tom, two guests. lovely
1: guests
0: <laughs> in, our, in our lovely recording studio for this episode. Um, we've got two, so we're going to let them introduce themselves to you, um, but they are our colleagues. So I'm going to hand over to Dr Judith Neen, first
2: of all, Dr Judith. Thank you very much. And um, I'm the programme leader for PGCE English here at Cardiff Met um, and also interested in little bits of research and things like that. Lovely, good to have you with us, Judith. It's uh- very nice to to be inside a podcast. Actually, I'm quite enjoying having a look around what it's like to be inside a podcast, Emma. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like you're trapped, Judy. It does, it does. Not like I expected.
0: Tom, are you going to introduce our our second guest or hand over to our second
1: guest? I will. We've got Sean Watkins, who also happens to be my line manager, so I'm on bestest, bestest behaviour for this recording.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Your behaviour's always good, Tom. (laughs) Yes, I'm the Deputy Head for uh, Initial Teacher Education here at Cardiff Met, and I also teach on the PGCE Primary uh, in terms of language and literacy, and I've been doing that for about 20 years now. Well, welcome along to both of you, and thank you for joining us.
0: And Um, I think
1: appropriately for two people involved in literacy, we are going to attempt a book review discussion today, and we've picked something a little bit on the controversial side, a book that, when it came out, raised a fair few eyebrows. We've got Daisy Christodoulou's Seven Myths About Education.
0: We have. And I I think before we we talk about the book, Sean, you mentioned why you decided that this would be good for our book club. We've got a staff book club here at Cardiff Met. So why did you choose it?
3: Well, it was actually recommended to me by Ty Golden about a year or so ago from uh, He's an ex-student of ours, actually, and now doing very well in the high echelons of Welsh Government, helping to lead the new curriculum. So that says a lot about our student teachers, I think. It
0: does. Market employee, thank you. <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> Every opportunity. <laughs> um, and, yeah, he recommended this to me, and so I thought, right, OK, well, let's, let's give it a go. And I have to say, it did speak to me. It's an interesting book. I don't think I've ever read one like it before. I found that it said a lot of things that deep down in my heart I've been thinking for a while but at the same time it really irritated me too and i think we'll probably explore that today we absolutely will and i suppose for
0: for the listeners out there who don't know anything about this book just to give you a slice from the back of the book it says she examines seven widely held beliefs which are holding back pupils and teachers she says that those seven myths include facts prevent understanding Teacher-led instruction is passive, and we're going to focus quite closely in on those first two myths in our podcast today. The 21st century fundamentally changes everything. You can always just look it up. We should teach transferable skills. Projects and activities are the best way to learn. And teaching knowledge is indoctrination.
1: So pretty eye-catching stuff there. Seven supposedly widely held myths and several people making out that this is an important book we've got some uh, blurb on the back here that the mighty dylan william of inside the black box fames describes it as may well be the most important book of the decade on teaching Uh, meanwhile ed hirsch the former university of virginia professor of education feels that it should be distributed to every teacher administrator and college professor in the usa so it comes highly recommended by big names
0: it does and um, and i think something that we really want to drill down into today is is linked to a quote from Dylan William who's also endorsed this book and in his introduction or in his foreword he says with brilliant analysis daisy Christodoulou provides rigorous scientific evidence that each of these myths is just that something that is just demonstrably wrong it is also beautifully written so I think we're going to kind of try and interrogate that notion that it is rooted in scientific evidence and also talk about the first two myths. So, first of all, I think it's probably worth us talking about what our initial reactions were to the book.
2: Well, it starts from the premise that these myths exist and she gives Um, some theoretical evidence to this, and some examples of modern practice and explains why it's a myth. So my initial reaction was I liked the structure of it, um, that it had a clear structure, a clear process behind it. But when I started to read it, I wasn't so keen on the polemical stance that she takes. She puts a forceful argument forward for her views and so I wasn't so taken with her style of writing, and I also wasn't so taken with what her idea of evidence is as well.
0: Yes, I would agree with that, Judith. She, she sets forth in her introduction a really kind of clear process that she was going to um, to use or, or structure to use for her chapters and in, in examining these myths. So she says that she's going to examine how the myth has come into being through theory, how it's also been endorsed in practice and how it's present in practice, and then moves on to discuss why it is, uh, in fact, a myth. So that's her kind of her, her structure for each chapter. And I kind of agreed with you there, Judith. I thought it had a lot of promise that it was going to be rooted in theory, but I got a bit disappointed that she, she used similar theorists, yeah. but certainly for the first two myths, and it felt a little bit like she'd kind of cherry-picked some of their key arguments and decontextualise them and maybe reduce them a little bit to
2: me. I think you've summed it up really well. (laughs) And if you have a look at the examples that she's choosing um, for her evidence, for example, uh, they're extremely limited and they're not ones that we might look at. So in terms of the first couple of chapters, she talks about Rousseau, she talks about John Dewey Paulo Freire and she also uses Dickens mm. as a commentator on on the um, theoretical evidence side and you only have to have a little look at the index in the book actually to see how often they come up that you can see that she is just referring back to a very limited set of writers or philosophers very often in some case on on this so I wasn't too enamored with that really,
0: so that I think that's that's really useful as a, as a first kind of broad brush perspective. thanks for that, Judith. What about you, Sean? What was your kind of gut instinct after you'd
3: read the book? Um, I think, as I said before, I found myself while I was reading each of these chapters, first of all nodding and then, as the time went on, starting to feel in, Quite cross about some of the evidence that she was using to justify her arguments. For example, I mean, she, you talk about the repeated theorists and, and and sort of fairly limited um, pool of theorists, or if you can call some of them theorists actually. Yeah. But similarly, she uses a fairly limited pool of evidence as well. So she constantly refers to Ofsted reports, and I'm not sure that they're the best example to be using as evidence because I think we need to remember sometimes what those reports are trying to do. When um, an inspector goes in and they observe learning and teaching, they're primarily looking at learning. So what they're going to be doing is focusing on what children are actually doing. So it's, it's obvious that the examples that they're going to get are going to be linked to children actively doing as opposed to writing about a teacher standing at the front and imparting facts mm. but at the same time there's a part of me that understands where she's coming from because i think I, she she mentions in the first chapter about knowledge being seen as something that's passive or that children are being passive unless they're doing and i can relate to that i think i've probably as a teacher educator myself in the past have probably gone in and observed student teachers teach and said "Mm, those children were sat down for too long sometimes could those children be doing something more and a lot of the time I've been right but I do question sometimes how much did I sit back and think yes but just because they weren't doing doesn't mean that they weren't necessarily learning and I think we can easily get caught in that trap of thinking that if unless the children are actively busy and if they're just sitting, listening to the teachers, then they're not actually learning. And I, I think that is a a misconception that's out there, and and I, which she picks up.
1: Yeah, and I think that's possibly at the heart of the sense of disappointment that a few of us felt reading this book, which is that I'm absolutely ready for somebody to come along and challenge a lot of the orthodoxies around teaching and learning. And I suppose it's just a shame that in the book... Christa decided instead to make this a black and white fight that somebody had to win and somebody had to lose. And I think the, the point about her choice of evidence is very illustrative of that. I mean, there's even a point in the introduction where she's almost mocking some of the hilariously wrong answers that pupils are giving in, in GCSE papers, as if the fact that a few pupils gave a hilariously wrong answer to a question is evidence that the whole education system is broken. I think that's just a really good microcosm of the whole sensationalist and, and a little bit distasteful aspect about some of the way she makes her arguments.
3: I agree. And and not only that, I, mean, she, I think she refers to Shakespeare, Shakespeare at one point is a really good example of somebody who had gone through an education that was very knowledge-based, very fact-based, and it didn't hinder his creativity. I am sure that there is, there are, there are plenty of examples of brilliant people who've gone through an education system that have been more creative and are also brilliant. So I, it seems to me a very strange choice of evidence to be from my perspective i would agree
0: and i think what's perhaps just reading between the lines what's perhaps has made us all quite twitchy is not necessarily sometimes the content that she's including so sometimes we're finding ourselves agreeing with some of her arguments particularly when she's talking about why the myth is a myth we seem to be having a problem with her tone the the powerful rhetoric that she's using the choice of uh, theorists or practical examples that she's using. And for me, I found it quite worrying that a book that is held up by many critics as being, you know, seminal for teacher trainees is actually really not a very long book. And I would question, you know, how robust is your scientific evidence that these are myths? And also, who said these were myths in the first place? Who would hand on heart agree with the statement? facts prevent understanding. I, th- I find that quite patronising actually, that she's suggesting that people hold that soundbite
3: as, as a truth. Yeah. I don't think anybody would agree with that, would they? And I would say really that I don't think that this really is the best book for all teacher trainees. I think they should be aware of it, but as a seminal text, I would worry about that. I think we've all been in education for a long time and because we've all been in education for a long time we can read this and we can say okay I agree with that I'm not so sure about that and we can take a more measured approach and more analytical approach. I do wonder about anybody just starting on their journey um, if they read this and sort of fell for the rhetoric.
2: Mm. I think also it's interesting that she herself actually has quite limited teaching experience so for those of us who've been in teaching and observed teaching in many different schools and observed many teachers and their practice we can see how selective she is being with her examples she comes through from i believe the teach first route where they're targeting a very particular type of school and doing a fabulous job with a very particular type of school but their experience is limited and you run into danger um, by picking out selected examples from things with limited experience of the whole range of schools and the whole range of teaching practices um, and I and I think this is possibly one of the problems behind the book
3: but on a positive I mean what you could say is if she hadn't written this book in this way would we be talking about this topic which is a great point and actually I wonder
0: would it therefore be really exciting to use extracts with teacher trainees to promote critical thinking you know to get them to really dissect well what you know what is our exactly as we've done now what is our gut reaction to this Obviously, they're not necessarily be able to draw upon the practical experience that we have, so that's where it becomes problematic. But certainly, may, maybe maybe towards the end of their teacher training year, when they've had quite a lot of input, to start to think about, you know, critically about her her arguments um, and unpick them might be a useful exercise. I mean, there's
2: definitely yeah. interesting points. I know where we were looking mainly at myths one and two, myth um, later on deal with the impact of technology in the 21st century and the Google generation and, you know, whether we can just look facts up and that. And there's some nice provocative things coming out which would be very nice to discuss about the truth behind them and the influence behind some of these these myths and that so yes I think it has got potential in that way. and of that
1: technology stuff um, looks back to our digital competence episode doesn't it where we made the point I think the, the chapter we were looking at in that episode made the point that just because the pupils can look things up doesn't mean that they've got the critical skills to use them and that's where we come in as teachers I think the thing that slightly worries me about this book particularly if, as suggested, it was distributed free into the hands of every trainee teacher in the land is that it sort of seems to be promoting a kind of bit of an ego boost for the teacher up at the front as fount of knowledge kind of thing, which, if completely unchecked, I think is potentially a little bit dangerous. I know the people that make me twitch the most when I'm interviewing candidates are the ones whose view of teaching is that they are this great sort of guru at the front bestowing their knowledge on the pupils and that they're going to lap it up gratefully. And I do wonder whether, perhaps being a bit controversial, that view of what a teacher should be may be why Daisy Christodoulou ran into trouble in the early part of her career in a tough school in London.
3: I think that's a fair point and I think it's also a point that why we have these different Ofsted and Estin exemplification materials which focus on learning rather than teaching. So I I think that is very much a fair point that you've just made there. We know with student teachers, they go through, if you like, a stages of development where to begin with, they think about themselves. It's, it's a survival instinct. You know, what am I going to do? How will I come across? What will I say? What will I do? You know, how will I perform? And it takes a while before they start asking, what do the children need? What do the children need to learn? Mm-hmm. And I think a book like this Sends you a little bit back to what does the teacher do mm. rather than how does the child learn? But that's not to say that she's not thinking about how children learn. No, know, no, know, she, she does cover that, but it's very easy to get back into the teacher focus rather than the child focus.
0: I agree. And I think what is potentially a little bit concerning about the sort of the extreme end of a very teacher led knowledge driven Curriculum pedagogical approach is that that's actually a way of controlling kids in the classroom as well. I I feel that that kind of can sometimes go hand in hand with quite a draconian approach to teaching Mm -hmm. because it helps you to manage the pupils. It goes hand in hand with quite an authoritarian discipline process in the classroom, you know, because if you're stood at the front and they're listening and they're sat in rows or facing you, that's what I'm picturing. And also if you have that formula of a lesson that they can't do anything independent until you have given them the facts, then that lends itself to quite a formulaic structure. And life isn't always like that. you know. And they're not always going to have you as a teacher. So my worry is that this this rhetoric and, and this philosophy that seems to be coming through quite strongly in this book could lend itself to
3: quite a restrictive and straight jacketed approach to teaching and learning and isn't that the easiest way to teach anyway yeah isn't a that what we blanket. all think of teaching <laughs> when you, when you first go into teaching isn't that what you imagine chalk and talk if if you google p- images of teachers you'll still see teachers in front of a blackboard (laughs) and that's not to devalue
0: you know the the fact that we are you know because otherwise we're redundant aren't we you know if if the other extreme of that is well why do we even need a teacher but i just it's those it's those polls that worry me um for teacher trainees particularly Yeah.
1: yeah and i think the problem is that that those people who feel that teaching is more nuanced than standing up the front and giving out your information, that sometimes you have to get beyond the comfort zone of control. This suggestion here is that they feel all sorts of slightly crazy things, like knowledge is pointless and indoctrination and all that kind of thing. And I think it's quite interesting that a lot of Christodoulou's defenders, you know, particularly the people writing in the front of the book, are very quick to say, oh, Christodoulou's critics Accuse her of setting up these false arguments, these straw men, I think perhaps they protest a little bit too much by bringing that up because, if I'm honest, I think that is exactly what she does in a lot of cases. She sets up arguments. I mean, there is a place um, in one of the early chapters, isn't there, where she quotes one of the philosophers and says that he effectively feels that facts are really just a starting point and that we have to use them for something useful and then makes this enormous logical leap or illogical leap that that he's therefore saying that facts are completely pointless
0: I've got an example of that here actually. So she says, for Rousseau, Dewey and Freire and the writers of the national curriculum, factual knowledge is seen as being in opposition to the kinds of abilities and thinking they want to develop. They all identify that teaching facts without meaning is unhelpful. And then she makes this leap saying, factual knowledge is not in opposition to creativity, problem solving and analysis, or indeed meaning and understanding. Factual knowledge is closely integrated with these important skills, and then I made a note next to this in the margin saying, "I think this is precisely the point that Dewey, Rousseau, and Freire were making, but they've unfortunately been taken out of context." And that's the problem I have: is there's this maybe false dichotomy that's been set up here, when actually it's just been a useful way of different perspectives, (laughs) isn't
2: it? It is different perspectives. On things, and she she is choosy on what she decides to look at. And um, what she does do, which I like, is she does look at cognitive load theory. Yes, and how we learn. Um, and in particular, she looks at Sweller et al. Only sort of tentatively, really, and it would have been. That's the sort of stuff that I would like student teachers to have a look at Mm. a little bit more about how we actually do learn. So looking at the cognitive architecture, the schemas that we have, the patterns Mm. um, that we already have in our long-term memory and how we add to those. So she, she does look at that and I think that's commendable of looking at that. It would have been nice, I think, if she would have looked at and teased out a little bit more about what she means by facts and what we mean by knowledge. It's a huge big area of study, I know, epistemology, but actually understanding knowledge and the types of knowledge that we use in the classroom is quite important. So for example, there is a psychologist, American psychologist, Shulman, who wrote about uh, the types of knowledge we use in the classroom talked about content knowledge so the content of the curriculum that we're teaching but also talked about pedagogical content knowledge Mm. and how we have a knowledge as teachers we develop a knowledge about how to express that knowledge how to learn that knowledge and that's actually a really important way of looking at it. And for student teachers to go and Google, I don't know whether uh, Chris Dodoulou would approve of me saying this, but go and Google the likes of Shulman and content and pedagogical content knowledge, and also Sweller and Cognitive Load would be a really good next point, I think.
0: I think that's a really good point. And we've naturally now kind of started getting into that first myth, haven't we? So it, the first myth that we looked at in book club was facts prevent understanding. So does anyone else have any kind of things that they liked or or felt quite strongly against in that chapter?
3: I've got something that's not in that chapter, but is linked to it, Go which she it. says actually in one of the later chapters. And this is interesting, by the way, I found as I read through the book, by the time I would got to the final chapters, I was thinking, okay, you've made your point, I've had enough. But some of the best points that she makes, I think, are in the later chapters. Oh, give us one. Well, my favourite one, I think, is this one. She says, I think that many educated people underestimate how much knowledge they have, and overestimate how much knowledge children have. And This is where I find myself really agreeing with her. Mm. Um, I think there has been a driver over the years, and I can see where she's coming from, towards getting children to learn things through experiential learning and so on. The knock-on effect of that sometimes is that we do assume too much that children have a knowledge base that they don't actually have, and I'll use an example here which is specifically related to grammar. I mean, we've been, as I said, been here for 20 years. For 20 years, we've been filling the gaps in uh, student teachers' own subject knowledge about language. So they get some input on grammar teaching. And, and every time we teach them about aspects of grammar, there is a backlash Uh, where students feel quite irritated that they've not been taught certain things. Because we do a lot of it in a very didactic way. It's teacher-led. We've got a lot to get done in a very short space of time. So it's very much from the front. And because that's a more traditional way, the students start to see grammar and rules of grammar. Not that there's very many rules. Nothing's ever fixed. But they, they sort of see it in a different way that they've never seen it before. And they always come back and say they're quite irritated by that. And that's because, for all these years, we've been teaching grammar through writing, Mm. through reading. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but perhaps we have missed a trick over the years about teaching them some of the more fundamental principles of grammar so that they have that knowledge to be able to make the right choices. Same with sort of genres of texts, the first thing we do is unpick all sorts of misconceptions like commas are there to take a breath and the minute you start to unpick that the students are saying well why are we taught that?
2: To Um, be fair, I think probably a lot of them have been taught it Yes, Um, and I was observing a lesson yesterday with a student teacher. Uh, say hello to Jacob, well done, (laughs) he was teaching about different types of sentencing and complex sentences and compound sentences, he was teaching about subordinate clauses and that. Now he's teaching them to students who are 11, 12 years old and I think a lot of this does go on but our student teachers sometimes don't remember that they've ha- that they've had that input as well. I think that is part of it as well.
3: I, th- I think that's probably true, but I think also, I think Daisy Chrisadula will talk about it's not about teaching it the once. It's there. There's a, there's an a element spiral of the, and the need for retrieval practice mm-hmm. and so. On. And I know there's a there's a big push towards retrieval practice and, mm-hmm. and a little bit of drilling and skilling again as well. Yes, and potentially there is an element maybe is sometimes that we teach something then we expect children just to suddenly apply it and there you are it's fixed Mm. and maybe there's a need sometimes to look at knowledge for knowledge's sake
1: Mm. as well. Sorry I think music is another good example of that slightly uneasy thing between technique and skill there's always this this a slightly uneasy relationship between technique and musicianship and do we teach them technical stuff or do we teach them musical stuff and actually Chris Didulu does give that nice analogy of it being a double helix or a sort of double spiral doesn't she and and I remember one of my teachers when I was growing up and learning instruments used to describe it as being like building two walls next to each other and one wall was your technique and one was your musicianship your kind of artistry and that there was no point having one much higher than the other because if you can play your notes amazingly what's the point if you don't know what to do with it and equally if you've got great artistic ideas but you can't Actually, turn them into reality. Then you're going to get very frustrated. And I think we're all kind of fine with that idea, aren't we? And and it, it's kind of strange that she then seems to try and split them back apart again in the course of trying to make her argument.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I I think I keep coming back to Judith's point about cognitive science and actually what you then do with that knowledge and how that influences how you then craft the lesson. I think all of that is really important but the other thing that kind of comes into this is the idea of engagement and is it occasionally more engaging to give them in all its complexity the thing that you're going to break down into its technical parts just to get their initial response to it. I'm, I'm thinking quite clearly about of my own subject here, I'm thinking about art and drama and, and and also you know music let's give an example from music just so i'm not biased so they listen to a symphony at the start of a lesson or you know a complex piece of music just because they don't know the technical facts to do with or the technicalities of that the seven musical e- elements i hope i'm right there tom
1: eight musical elements, eight <laughs> musical e-
0: elements. see that's uh, clearly don't have the knowledge but then are we saying that those pupils can't learn something right off the bat or have something to contribute that shows their their learning in response to that piece of music before you then unwrap the gift for them and give them the give them the tips give them the secrets unlock the secrets
3: i agree as long as you do unwrap it i think and you give them the secrets as well because i think it it's the same with writing children can write beautifully Mm -hmm. and not actually understand the features of grammar and so on and do very, very well with their writing. But when you start to unpick the writing or when you start to teach them the secrets of the grammar behind it, their writing can get better because then they can make more informed choices. So sometimes the writing can come first. Yes. The grammar can come second. Sometimes the music can come first. The techniques yes. can come second, or the knowledge base behind that. I don't understand music at all, Tom. Um, but that's I interesting. I just like it. <laughs> that's so interesting. And, and, and through this conversation, obviously, we, we, we're
0: all kind of proving that we don't agree with these myths. Mm. But my worry with the book is that taken as read, a student teacher might go, oh, okay, I cannot do anything independent with my people I can't encourage any independent learning or creativity until they've got all the
3: facts. I guess the only point that Daisy Chrisadoulu would make would be that that takes longer yeah that it's quicker to tell them and then them do it then them do it, and then you tell them. And I I don't know. I mean, that's an interesting one. Fast food
1: is quicker than cooking your own tea, isn't it? (laughs) It doesn't necessarily mean you want fast food for every meal.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm off from McDonald's. (laughs) It comes back to this pedagogical content knowledge as well about your knowledge of how to teach something. It comes back to the order in which you do things, recognising the key things that students need to do and uh, what they need to finish up with at the end. And that's what you're doing as a teacher, is not just telling them the facts, but recognising all the other elements that need to go with that. So that, I mean, I agree with her completely. You need to make a change to the long-term memory. Yes. If you're learning, you're making a change to the long-term memory. And as teachers, we're using the whole range of strategies that we can. And I suppose this is where I might have an issue, is later on also she talks about project work and criticises this quite heavily. And, of course, I wouldn't promote just having independent project work or problem-based learning, inquiry-based learning as the only way forward, but as a tool that you might use at a certain point within the learning to support your learners, then I haven't got a problem with it. And it's that pedagogical content knowledge that we need to be developing as well.
1: I think that was what I liked in there is that she introduced me to some other ideas, you know, the psychology kind of stuff. I mean, I think at that point I put my hand up and said, you know, it's a fair cop gov. I don't know anything about that as, an, or anywhere near as much as I should. And similarly, I was reading an article by someone else the other day who was sort of saying, oh, I'm, I'm a lonely philosopher in a department of initial teacher education and we should have more philosophy in there. And I'm thinking, yeah, I'm absolutely fine with this. I love this idea that we need to broaden broaden our influences. Therefore, that makes it all the more disappointing that having made that quite potentially interesting and enriching argument, she then uses it to try and imply that there is some sort of very unnuanced, very black and white answer in which a whole kind of side of education can be dismissed out of hand. And I think that's, we, we've all used the word disappointed multiple times in this review. And I think that's probably the absolute, you know, pinnacle of my disappointment in the way she's writing this.
3: Yeah. The, pro- the problem is, isn't what she, taking what you've just said there, though, isn't what she's trying to do is say, but knowledge has been thrown out the window, it's not being appreciated. Content is not being appreciated. The way that the curriculum has changed over the years has been quite dismissive of content. And I have some sympathy with this. So I think there is something to be said, I think, about if we do throw content out the window, if we're not thinking about that when we're thinking about our curriculum, if we're not thinking about that, Through the progression of a child's education, do we not take those risks that we end up just teaching the same old things and we miss some very important stuff? Do you know, I think that's a really
0: good point, John, And, and actually I think going hand in hand with what Judith said about teaching teacher trainees about cognitive science and also kind of pedagogical knowledge and curriculum content knowledge. I think the other kind of branch to this is we don't necessarily teach our teacher trainees about curriculum design, about, well, what is the essential knowledge that our pupils should have mm. and finish school with, you know, and, and who says and why, And and why is that useful for contemporary society where we are now? you know what is known I mean, there are lots, lots of big statements aren't there sometimes put out there about you know the best that has ever been thought or said yeah. just the notion that a good curriculum will teach pupils the best that has ever been thought and said and we were talking earlier on about Shakespeare you know being mm-hmm. held up by Christodou and, and you know obviously we can't avoid the iconic status and the you know the incredible sort of body of work that Shakespeare's produced we wouldn't deny that but I think for student teachers I think it's important for them to debate well, what is essential knowledge in my curriculum? How do I map that out? When should they engage with different topics? and how many times in you know side by side with cognitive science, you know, that schema, How big is it? How much time do they need to dedicate to the World War II? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so I think we're almost through the process of this review. Having ideas about what teacher trainees need to learn about and there's maybe
3: discrepancies in their in their curriculum, I agree, I agree I think well, I'm not sure that we have really thought enough about what subject knowledge do they need to be and what what should be in the curriculum. I think we have focused over the years much more on pedagogy, and perhaps that's the reason why this book d- did speak to me as much as it did irritate me i'm going to repeat that. Yeah. It did speak to me because I think deep down in my heart, I've known that that part has been dismissed a little bit. And I do wonder whether that is, that there is a risk that that could happen here with our new curriculum too, even though I know Graeme Donaldson has come out several times. I've heard him speak several times now, and he has reiterated several times that knowledge is still a very important part of this curriculum. Mm yeah
0: but it comes back to the point that you made about chris to later point in the book and that we we overestimate what children know yeah maybe we overestimate what teacher trainees know and the thing that we overestimate is that they've potentially got all of this subject knowledge because they've done a degree in the subject they're about to teach but they don't know how to break what is incredibly complex schema down for the unknowing pupil maybe that's the bit of their knowledge that's The discrepancy. So we we just assume perhaps that teacher trainees are going to know how to do
3: that. Oh, absolutely. And it's incredibly complex. It is, it is. Can I give you one more quote from her, which I really like? Yes. Knowledge of the external world is also important for equality. If you only teach pupils using the knowledge they bring to the classroom and the knowledge they might pick up through experience... Then you will reproduce educational inequalities. Oh, that's brilliant. I thought that was, that really spoke to me. Um, I remember early in the days when I was working here, I went to uh, visit a head teacher, um, a local head teacher who was introducing interactive whiteboards. <laughs> that's how old <laughs> I'm starting <laughs> to feel. she's She was one of the first people to introduce interactive whiteboards into her school. And it was in a, Deprived area. Most of the children sort of lived on the estate. Well, all of the children lived on the estate. Um, That was where most of their lives were, were on that particular estate. And she just gave me a little tour of the school. And I went to find out about the interactive whiteboards. But actually, what I went away with was something really, really interesting. And that was that she, all day, she pumped through images of the world, images of Cardiff, images of the UK images of all sorts of exciting things out there. All day she pumped these images through and she said she did this for a reason and that's because the children on this estate never got off the estate never even into Cardiff they never got off the estate and she wanted them to know that there is a whole world out there, there's a whole lot of experiences out there there's an amount of knowledge out there and that was about providing an equality, or, or raising their aspirations, and 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 making sure that there was an equality um, mm. for those children. Mm. And I, she made me think of that very amazing head teacher, mm. um, and she made me think about how important it is probably that in those socially deprived areas, that knowledge is probably more important.
2: I than don't. Th- else. I don't think you can fault her her rationale behind why she's written the book and i don't think for one minute that she's not absolutely concerned with the furtherment, particularly of students who are in socially challenged backgrounds etc and and she talks about her own background in in the introduction of the book so i think she's she is coming from a, a good place on this and um you know to be commended for doing so really yeah. I, and I presume this ties in with um her experience within within teaching now within uh, her earlier experience with teach first etc um I don't doubt that she's that she's committed
0: just looking at the time now I think we've had a lovely meandering um, walk through Krista book just one final point about what are our takeaways so just really quickly round the circle I'll start I'm going to take away from this that teacher trainees need to access books like this to develop their own critical thinking about their pedagogy and about the curriculum.
3: Okay. I think my takeaway from this is that we need to be thinking as much about knowledge and content as we do about the way we teach and the skills that children should be learning. And there needs
2: to be a more equal balance And I would say that student teachers should go away or we all should go away and think more about the nature of knowledge and actually look up Shulman, look up Sweller and find out more about some of the important ideas that actually lie behind her writing.
1: And I think I was... Absolutely ready as a card-carrying sort of person who likes to put the onus on the pupils and get them to at least believe that they're working independently of me. I think I was ready for a book that would challenge my assumptions in a nuanced and, dare I say it, civilised way. And I'd say this book is not it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so... we've had a really interesting deep discussion there thank you very much to our our special guests for your thoughts on that and now we're on to our well-being slot which is our usual well-being slot and we as we always like to do we give our guests some homework and Sean, you are today's victim (laughs) so you're going to give us um, some thoughts now first of all on well-being okay so
3: i want to talk about the benefits of a brisk walk Lovely. Um, I think you already know I'm getting quite evangelical about this. It's something that I started back in May. Mm -hmm. I did what we all do at some point. I looked at myself in the mirror and said, you really need to lose that baby weight. 12 years is a long time to be claiming baby weight. But what can I do? I can't bear the idea of gyms. I don't understand the concept of running, walking or cycling and actually getting nowhere. Um, It seems (laughs) too metaphorical of the worst things in life. So the best thing I thought I could do was just go out and get some fresh air and go for a walk. So it started off as something that I did to lose a bit of weight. But in all honesty, it became so much more than that. It made me start thinking about how it's impacting on my well-being. I'm quite lucky. I live next to some fields. Actually, you call them fields. They're more like part waste ground, part woods and a little bit of fields, but it'll do me and when i started walking what i found myself doing was noticing things like the bluebells and thinking how pretty they are then i noticed how as time went on that got overtaken with six foot ferns and i could see my walk getting shorter because i couldn't get through the ferns but i was quite struck by the power of nature to take over the beauty with a new beauty yeah then obviously as time's gone on we've gone through the seasons we've walked through the mud and this morning I went from my walk and walked through the frost and where I'd been walking through slush yesterday today it was crisp and hard and there were beautiful patterns from the frost and what I have found is being able to go for a walk and to appreciate the nature around you really helps to give you that sense of mindfulness mm-hmm. I think which is much more natural, far superior, I think, to sitting and staring at a raisin for three minutes, which I think some people do as a mindfulness technique. <laughs> um, yes, I know. The, the power of nature around you helps you to, I think, put some of your problems in perspective. You start to realise that some of your problems are small. It's also very good for clearing your head. And helping you to think very often I will come out of a meeting or if I've got a problem, I'll throw some trainers on, go for a very brisk walk and I can come back and there you go. I can work again. And I think especially for our student teachers who are struggling with the lesson plans, I think you talked before about the power of a cup of tea. Mm. Um, It's the same, I think, with a brisk walk. If you're struggling with an idea for a plan or struggling, you've got a bit of writer's block I think just getting outside, getting a bit of fresh air and going for a walk is is definitely a, um, a positive thing to do, and you'll find yourself thinking much more clearly. And I will just refer to a very interesting article in The Guardian, which I read a couple of months back, where in Scotland, in Shetland, doctors are now officially being told to prescribe nature prescriptions to patients who may have mental illness diabetes heart disease stress because just the whole power of going for a walk in nature can have such a positive effect on their well-being so Lovely. I think that's
1: a good idea. Yes, I walk to work whenever I can. And I have to say my previous job, I used to commute half an hour in the car. um, And that was my limit for commuting in the car. (laughs) And now I walk in, it takes roughly the same amount of time. And the thing that I noticed was that suddenly I could see a bit like what you were saying, I could see the seasons changing as I was coming into work. And it just made me feel a bit more in touch with the world instead of just being in my car or in my house, or in my work, and nothing in between, and it had a surprisingly profound effect. Mm,
3: Exactly. And I have to say, if you'd spoken to me a year ago, I would have looked at you like you were stupid if I was talking about nature and snow, frost, and the leaves, the colours of the leaves. But actually, once you start, it's amazing how it does centre you. So I would recommend a good brisk walk, and it doesn't have to be half an hour, it could be 10 minutes.
0: Thank you for that, Sean. I think that's given us all food for thought, and I totally agree with you there as as a regular dog walker. Okay, have you got a shout out for us?
3: Someone you'd like to celebrate? I do. I would like to celebrate our student teachers who, for whatever reason, have left their previous careers behind, and have come back into I've decided to take a new path and come into teaching great so I'd like to give a shout out to one in particular to Claire Douglas she's a student teacher who was on the PGCE primary last year mm-hmm. I'm actually still in touch with her because funnily enough we're both governors on the same governing body oh, now. Wow. so <laughs> we were tutor and student teacher we're now colleagues I'd like to give a shout out to her Partly because, yes, she is a mature student. She's got a family. It's a brave decision to do. And I remember going to observe her last year very early in her training and saw what was a very memorable lesson. For somebody who was very early in her training, she managed to throw everything that you can imagine at a really fantastic lesson. Great. And it started with this... Her bringing in a friend of hers, a Mr. Forty, who's actually quite well known. He's a record holder uh, for the world's or the UK's heaviest bell pepper at 560 grams well he grew it he grew it wow yes impressive yes she brought him into this lesson with his huge vegetables (laughs) um, and used it as a fabulous piece of inspiration for the children for a lesson on measuring they the topic was giants And you would think about, obviously, the BFG, who would think about giant vegetables. But she did. She brought in this this friend of hers with his giant vegetables and used it as a wonderful wow moment to inspire and motivate these year two children. And that might be something maybe that our Daisy Crissodoulou might not see as a particularly good use of time. But actually, it really was because it really motivated those pupils. And what they went on to do then was to go off and do some measuring of vegetables. Fantastic. Um, But there was plenty of knowledge in all of this too. She made sure that prior to measuring, they had reinforced the differences between height and length. So there was good vocabulary check there. She made sure they remembered where to start with measuring. She helped them make sure that they could make good choices in terms of measuring tools. Mm -hmm. And they went off into their groups and she had all the teachers' aides, all the learning and support assistants there, they were well supported, they knew exactly what it is that they needed to do, there was a really good team atmosphere. And then she had the children measuring accurately, as accurate as they could, and putting the results onto a poplet, which is an app on, on an iPad. And she even included some challenge in the sense that she had some large-sized vegetables and some normal-sized vegetables. And she'd made sure that these normal-sized vegetables were of a certain size so that the higher-ability children could start rounding their numbers up. nice. So it wasn't just measuring, but it was rounding up too. And that was the challenge that she placed for them. So she was managing to hit all those aspects of differentiation, challenge, knowledge was in there, but still that incredible wow factor that really got those children working in the first place. And then at the very end, because they'd been capturing all these facts on their poplets, she was able to airdrop that to the whiteboard and compare results. And if those results weren't the same she was able to unpick okay children why aren't the same what did we do wrong there's the misconceptions and the yes. misconceptions and the reinforcement and this was somebody who'd actually only been teaching for a few months and obviously now she's teaching and she's doing very well and she's a uh, strong out there on twitter we were able to follow her progress because she uses twitter all the time what's so, her handles sean do you know Not off the top of my head, I'm afraid. What was her name again? Claire Douglas. Claire Douglas. There we go, Everly. Claire Douglas. So I would definitely recommend checking out her tweets.
0: Lovely. Thank you for that. And actually, I think baked into there was quite a lot to try. Um, Yes, I was
1: just thinking, are we even going to have something to try on top of all those things to try? We uh are... truly blessed today.
3: Well in terms of something to try I guess it does relate very much to that lesson and that's the whole concept of creating a hook. Let's see if we can get out there and create a hook that's a bit different. Something I've been talking about with my student teachers recently is the Writing for Real project which um, was developed by Jill Matthews and Stephanie Ostwick this is uh, some research that was done a few years back now, in 2010. The Making It Real is a project that they did with schools in the black country where they used the teacher in role to incite children to write for a real purpose and for a real audience. And so we've been exploring that whole concept of using the teacher in role as a hook to give an audience and meaning and a purpose to write um so we're really at the moment that's what we're looking at is that whole concept of creating a hook and making sure that there's something to entice the children make the children want to do something i love that drama you was your creative hook oh, i like it <laughs> yeah. I, I love a bit of drama we've talked when we when we think about creating a hook one of the things that you can do obviously is using video but I, it's a, it's a health warning, I think. With YouTube, it's very easy to use YouTube videos as your hook all the time. I'd like to encourage people to think of other ways. So we've got the role play. We've got the teacher in role. We could bring in people, bring in exciting props. We could have things like brown bag mysteries, where you could have Props within the brown bag, which you pull out, which could be a wonderful inspiration for a new topic. One of my favourites is to laminate a quote, or laminate a fact, or a sentence, and just sellotape it to the floor. Oh, I like it. For teachers to come in, and for for the children to come in, and just what's that? What's that doing there? And creating that intrigue, creating that curiosity. Curiosity, yeah. Which really speaks to the the art
0: of teaching doesn't it you know we talked a lot about cognitive science but actually there there is a real kind of sense of artistry to what we do how we craft a lesson to
3: you know to get our audience (laughs) enticed exactly exactly and I think a little bit of thought about getting them interested getting them motivated getting them wanting to learn Um, it's all very well that children know they're in school to learn but that can get a bit boring after a bit what after a while the novelty can soon wear off. sometimes we need to give them a meaning, we need to give them a purpose and and, a, and an audience too. V, thank you very much
1: wonderful, and we should reassure you because Judith has been very quiet through those slots that she's coming back for another episode in which we will have all of her tips, tricks, and wellbeing ideas. Thank you. I will be back. <laughs> you will be back. And that brings us to the end of a Fairly Mammoth episode. So, enormous thanks to Dr Judith Neen, who you heard there at the end, and Sean Watkins for joining us for that interesting book review. We'll be back with the next episode. And uh, until then, have a lovely time. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, that was
2: Emma and Tom's PGCE podcast presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Today's guests were me, Dr. Judith Neen, and Sean Watkins. The book we were discussing was Seven Myths About Education by Daisy Christodoulou. The episode was also brought to you by Sweller et al., William Shakespeare, the man who grew the world's heaviest bell pepper, and some random noisy builders outside the window. Another shout of congratulations to Claire Douglas on making the leap into teaching from her previous career and making it real for her pupils. It's New Year 2019 and time for some resolutions. Could yours be to join us? Well, we're all off to stare at a raisin until all our problems go away. Until next time, take care and enjoy teaching.